It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Story after story in human history teaches good versus evil. The familiar narrative clearly lays out the right and wrong choices a person can make, and that simplicity can be comforting. But the stories that really ring true and get us to pay close attention are the ones that are more complex. There's something to that idea that none of us are born evil. What I want to do is try and understand the choices that people make and where they come off the track. New Yorker writer Patrick Radden Keefe will spend months looking at a high-profile person under a microscope. Sometimes he interviews a subject, but often he just talks to as many people around them as he can find. He turns that reporting into scrutinizing, but humanizing, three-dimensional written portraits. Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling conversations hosted by the Aspen Institute. Today's discussion is from the Winter Words conversation series held by Aspen Words. Visit aspenwords.org for information on the 2023 season's remaining events, both in-person and virtual. And consider joining us in person this June at the Aspen Ideas Festival. Passes are on sale at aspenideas.org. Keefe's writing is sometimes criticized for bringing too much compassion to people who have caused a lot of harm. But he's fascinated by the moral ambiguity that most humans grapple with, on some level, and how it manifests in people who deviate sharply from the norm. His latest book, Rogues, True Stories of Grifters, Killers, Rebels, and Crooks, compiles the best of his work on that theme. Mitzi Rapkin, host of the literary podcast First Draft, interviews Keefe about how he approaches his work and profile subjects. Here's Rapkin. I'm curious about your hunger, like just your hunger for these stories and all the stories that you've written. Like, where does that hunger come from? Oh, I mean, I should say, first of all, thank you all for coming. It's wonderful to be here. Um, My first time in town. And thank you, Mitzi, for doing this. Um, the, um, I don't know. I mean, I, I, when I was a kid, I had, uh, that tendency that I think a lot of kids have where if there's, you know, if you, if you take a piece of candy and you hold it behind your back, I want to know which, which hand it's in. Um, if you tell me you have a secret, uh, I want to figure out what it is. And there's probably just a little bit of that childlike desire to go out and just kind of dig and excavate and figure things out. Um, And I also grew up loving stories. You know, I think probably like a lot of us here, right? Like one of my earliest memories is, is lying next to my mom uh, in bed, having her tell me a story before I fell asleep. And I think that as humans, we're kind of hardwired to process information best when it's told in the form of a narrative. Um, and so the part of me that likes telling stories uh, is also the part of me that likes hearing them. I feel as though those, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of somewhere in my DNA. Those are very closely linked. And so when I'm investigating uh, a story, whether it's about Chapo Guzman um, or the Sackler family or, or whatever it is, I have this kind of, this hunger, this kind of compulsion to go out there and just do the spade work to get the kinds of details that I can then hopefully string together into a compelling yarn. Did you interrogate the bully on the playground when you were a kid? Um, 
I, that's a good question. I mean, I was, I was not like, I, I definitely had, uh, my father, um, who was kind of an old school meat and potatoes, Boston Irish guy was the kind of father who would say, you know, you see a bully, go out and punch him in the nose. And then he'll like, you know, he won't bother you again. You know, when I was like seven. Um, and, um, I, I never really uh, took that kind of head-on approach, but I will say that there is a little part of me that's, um, you know, I went to law school, uh, um, which is not a course of, um, uh, not a course I would, I would necessarily recommend for people who are aspiring to be journalists, but, um, but it did bring out, a, I have a kind of slightly adversarial nature where, um, yeah, I do, you know, I, I think there is something, um, I think there's a kind of accountability that can come with telling these sorts of stories. So, so many of your stories in Rogues are about people that we could probably say definitively are evil, and some of them that are champions for things. But in another way, that's too simple. People are very, very complex. And I think part of maybe graduating into adulthood is being able to hold ambiguity. And so I'm really curious, as you write about these people, from the Sacklers to El Chapo to arms dealers to even people who are defending people on death row, how do you balance that idea of maybe very simplistic good and bad with how complex people are and also having some compassion for that? So I can now tell that you've interviewed a lot of writers because you've, you've put your, in the third question, you've put your finger on the... Um, what is um, probably the the feature of my writing that I struggle with the most. So um, one of the stories in Rogues is about a woman named Judy Clark, who is a one of the most famous death penalty lawyers in the United States. She's a fierce opponent of the death penalty, and she's devoted her life to uh, trying to save the lives of people who are facing capital charges. But you know, in a country in which we have lots and lots of innocent people on death row, and it stands to reason there are other people who uh, may be, you know, they may be being prosecuted right now for crimes that they didn't actually commit and could get the death penalty. You might think if you were an, a, an, an opponent of the death penalty, those would be the people you would seek out, not Judy Clark. She picks what they call the worst of the worst. And so I was writing about the Boston Marathon bombing case. She represented the bomber. She represented Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber. She represented Zacharias Musawi, uh, the 20th hijacker in 9-11. Her view is even the worst among us deserve to have their lives spared, even if they've done these terrible things. And one of her articles of faith is that none of us are born evil, that people do terrible things, but that most of us at a certain point kind of deviate from the normal path and she wants to be able to reconstruct that story. And we can argue about whether or not that's true and whether what she does is virtuous. And part of what's interesting with that story is people who read it often differ. Like some people think of her as very saintly and other people think, why is this woman devoting her tremendous skills as a lawyer to protecting these people who've done such evil things? But for me, um, there's something to that idea that none of us are born evil. What I want to do is try and understand the choices that people make and where they come off the track. And it's a, it's a criticism, frankly, that some people have of my writing. I wrote a book called Say Nothing 
about the troubles in Northern Ireland and about a young woman named Dolores Price, who was the first woman to join the IRA as a real frontline soldier. So not providing auxiliary support, but actually, um, you know, she bombed London. She set car bombs in London in 1973, um, targeting people for execution. And what I struggle with in a story like that is I don't think she was a psychopath. I think she made a series of choices that she thought were justified at the time. I may not find them justified, but I want to try and understand what made her make those decisions. There are some people who look at a, a book like that and say, you're humanizing a terrorist. How could you do that? Or I mean, it, my, my piece about Chapo Guzman, similarly, I'm looking at him not just as the evil head of the Sinaloa cartel, but as a, a businessman who was running a multi-billion dollar transnational commodities enterprise and um, a person who had a certain charisma that brought people to follow him. Um, I don't think that there's a lot of utility in a journalist certainly kind of pounding his or her fist on the lectern and delivering a sermon about the evils of people. Um, I'm much more interested in trying to understand where they came off the path of what we would think of as conventional morality. And, and if I'm humanizing them in the process, uh, that's something I actually feel pretty good about. The, one of the hallmarks of your writing is that you do the write around. So many of the subjects that you write about, you cannot talk to, they won't talk to you. So you talk to everyone around them. And I was thinking, it's kind of like a prism like a like maybe a glass triangle and instead of looking at the sun you're looking at all of the rainbow colors that come out of it and because of that you get a much more complex like full-bodied story right if you talk to some child chapo he's like i'm i'm awesome you know i'm great and he'll tell you this story about how the good he's doing for the world so i'm curious about the rainbow and how you um if you think that makes a more complex story, and when you get pieces, if you feel like you understand people much better. Yeah, I think, I think access in journalism is really overrated, especially when you're talking about powerful people or people who are savvy about the media. Um, at The New Yorker, we have these meetings on Tuesday afternoons, these ideas meetings, where if anybody can come to the meeting, but the price of admission is you need to propose three ideas for the magazine to write about. And every six months or so, there'll be some new employee who doesn't know the drill, and they come in, and, and when it's their turn, they say, I think we should write a profile of Beyonce. And um, everybody will roll their eyes and say, we've been trying to do that for years, decades. She doesn't want to participate, and so we just won't do the piece. And yeah, I, I tend to think, why not move ahead and write the piece even when the person doesn't give you cooperation, you sometimes have to work twice as hard in order to paint a really vivid picture of someone. But I honestly think a lot of the time that um, you're right, it's the kind of rainbow colors, when you see them reflected in the, in the perceptions of the people around them, um, you can learn a lot more often than you could if you sat down for an interview with the person themselves. Particularly, again, if they're the kind of person who says, all right, we'll do the interview, but um, you know, my press person is going to be sitting on this side of the table, and my lawyer is going to be sitting next to them, and we'll do the whole thing off the record, and I'll give you 45 minutes, and here are the things you can ask about, and here are the things you can ask about. Um, that doesn't shed all that much light. So there's a piece in Rogues about Mark Burnett, 
big reality TV producer who was responsible for The Apprentice, uh, the show that um, really put, put Donald Trump, um, the notion of Donald Trump as a peerless businessman uh, in the national imagination. And um, I, I wanted to write a big piece about Burnett and, and The Apprentice and how it came to be in his relationship with Trump. And Burnett didn't want me to write the piece and, and didn't cooperate with the piece. So he wouldn't give me an interview. Um, <laughs> But he had these two ex-wives, and um, <laughs> and uh, they did talk to me. And and in retrospect, like given the choice between an interview with Burnett and interviews with these two women who had lived with him and and um, been married to him uh, and then dumped by him, um, I would take the latter. I mean, I think that I got more out of out of those encounters. So I want to go back to part of the question I was asking you before that about the ambiguity of, of human beings and how do you parse that out when you're hearing all of these things? I mean, the ex-wives probably had loads of things to tell you and the best friend would tell you something else. And how do you balance that, not just as a writer, but as like a person walking away from when you're done with a profile thinking, well, who is this person? I mean, we're all very complex. Yeah, I mean, I think, so the first thing to say is that I don't, um, uh, it's not a situation in which I'm writing hatchet jobs where I want to, I'm effectively like doing oppo research and all I want is the ex-wives and the, you know, ex-business partners and the jilted friends. Um, You want to create a picture of the person that will be recognizable um, to their nearest and dearest, and to the person themselves. I mean, Anthony Bourdain, who I wrote about, um, I, I spent a year uh, hanging out with him, I traveled with him, we spent a great deal of time. This is, this is um, the piece came out uh, a little more than a year before he killed himself. Um, and I remember when it, when it came out, I said to him, um, I said what I often say to people when they do participate, which is any of us, if, if, you, if, you sh- if, if I were to show any of you a photograph taken of you without makeup, without touching up in sort of the glare of, of, of a harsh light, um, and I'm, it, I'm, it's really up close, I can see every pore, that photo's probably gonna make you uncomfortable. You know, the chances are that you're not going to say, hey, can I get a copy of that and, and frame it and put it on my mantelpiece? Um, but that's sort of what you're trying to do when you write these pieces, whether the person cooperates with you or not. And so for me, what that means is you talk to lots and lots of people. Um, usually it's like dozens and dozens of people. Um, one of the luxuries of writing for The New Yorker is I can take six months, eight months, a year. And you have to weigh the different things that you hear. And sometimes you do encounter somebody who just kind of, they see nothing redeeming about the person. They're so full of anger that they, they almost shimmer when they talk to you. Um, and yeah, I have to discount what some of those people say. But likewise, when I'm talking to the, the best friend who's been like carefully coached to tell me certain anecdotes, um, I can usually suss those out too and, and discount them as well. It's interesting what you were saying about Mark Burnett because some of the characters basically rose to the place they were because of marketing. So he, he knew how to market Survivor 
And the Sackler family really started out. I mean, Arthur Sackler, the the real founding father of that whole dynasty, was a doctor, but he also was a marketer. And I'm curious how you've seen that play into like everything from image to the success. I mean, El Chapo probably is a good marketer. Absolutely. No, and I mean, the part of what I was trying to do with my, my when I, there were a couple of big pieces that I wrote about the Mexican drug cartels, one of which is the Chapo piece that's in here. Um, and what was always interesting to me about the cartels was that they are these very successful businesses and they think of themselves that way. So I wrote a piece, actually not for the New Yorker, 10 years ago I wrote a cover story for the New York Times Magazine that I thought of as like a Harvard Business School case study of a Mexican drug cartel um, and looking at the way they operate. And the, um, yeah, I mean, there's a woman I interviewed for that, for that piece who described one of Chapo's, um, <laughs> one of Chapo's uh, erstwhile collaborators, um, this guy Nacho Coronel. She said, Nacho Coronel, he was, he was the Steve Jobs of meth. Um, <laughs> and like, they do think of it that way. Um, yeah, I, listen, I mean, I, I don't, I'm interested in, in um, these kind of archetypal, I think of them as in some ways archetypally American hustler characters who um, they sort of have the hustle and they often start on the outside and work their way in and um, they often engage in like very risky behavior to get where they get and they make decisions that many of us probably wouldn't and they're the kinds of, I said to my wife the other day that they're the kinds of people who it's like if you were to start from the beginning and make a prediction you'd say there's 80% chance this person is going to end up like in prison or bankrupt and a 20% chance that they're going to conquer the world and a lot of the people that I have written about are those types of people and, and a lot of the time it is kind of marketing that they they market themselves, like they have their own story about themselves, their own origin stories, and then whatever it is that they're doing. I mean, in Mark Burnett's case, he starts out on the boardwalk in Venice um, buying like uh, in bulk t-shirts that were defective, like designer t-shirts that had defects, so he buys them for like $2 a piece, and then he goes out and he hustles them retail on the boardwalk for 18. Um, and to me, like, what is Donald Trump if not a $2 t-shirt? <laughs> that Mark Burnett kind of went out and hustled for 18 and he pulls it off so spectacularly that like the man becomes president. Um, and Arthur Sackler, you know, wasn't all that different. Arthur Sackler, long before OxyContin, Arthur Sackler uh, has his own medical advertising firm back in the 1950s and 60s. And one of his big clients is Roche. And Roche has a new drug called Valium. And so the first great Sackler fortune is made because Arthur Sackler designed the marketing of Valium. And the marketing for Valium said, it's good for what ails you, it's great for you know, any number of different indications, and there's no side effects, and it's not addictive, so don't worry. I guess that worked for many decades. It did. <laughs> um, speaking of archetypes, little side note, there's two different characters in rogues in two different stories in sort of mafia-type scenarios that have the nicknames The Nose. What is it with The Nose? It's a great nickname. Um, <laughs> yeah, I love nicknames. The, uh, um, so there's both a, yes, in, in, there's, a, there's a story about the criminal underworld in Amsterdam, which may surprise some of you, but it's a thing. Um, and the biggest gangster in Amsterdam 
whose nickname was The Nose. Um, and then one of Chapo's, yeah, one of Chapo's lieutenants was also The Nose. I think yeah. it's, you know, if you're in a criminal organization and you have a, a pronounced nose, yeah. they're not very imaginative when it comes to these nicknames. <laughs> so with that idea of archetypes, I'm curious about, I don't know, the different types of evil that you've seen. And what I mean by that is like, for some of the characters that you write about that are arms dealers, or maybe they're like knowingly um, really risking the lives of people in mines in Africa. And an arms dealer, or even back to El Chapo, they know, they know that what they're doing is wrong. They, they live in the underground. But for the Sacklers, they, they have like a sort of um, acceptance in our world until they get fully exposed. And so I'm curious what, if anything, you've learned about the consciousness of people who are doing evil but they know that they're bad because they're in the underground versus the Sackler types. Oh, I have so much to say about this. The, um, how long you got? Um, <laughs> the, uh, okay, so for starters, the, there's a thing I often think about, which is that, um, I mean, I might quibble a little bit with the premise of your question in the sense that there's a wonderful adage um, in Hollywood among screenwriters that um, if you're writing a movie and it's going to be a good movie, then the villain in your movie cannot believe that he is the villain in your movie. Like, he has to believe that he's the hero of the movie. Like the villain is actually watching a whole other movie. Um, and that sort of measures up with my experience is that I think most of us when we get out of bed in the morning, whether we're a regular civilian sitting in this room um, or Chapo Guzman, you look at yourself in the morning, in the, in the mirror, and you, you tell yourself a story about the kind of life you're living. And, and usually it's a story in which, um, you know, you're not totally evil, right? There are reasons why you've done the things that you've done. Maybe you're just really misunderstood. And that's one of the things I'm most intrigued by is the stories that people tell themselves about their conduct and tell their families and tell their associates. And I think in some ways the people who are really good at skirting the law and sometimes breaking it are the ones who are best at telling those stories. I mean, Arthur Sackler died a hero. I don't think he was a hero, but I think he, was, he, he had a very compelling yarn that he could tell about himself and his function in the world. Um, I also think that, look, let's, let's be honest, right? Like we live in a country in which there are two legal systems. And if you're white and wealthy and, um, you know, uh, a white collar executive, you're gonna get treated very differently both by the criminal justice system and by society at large um, than you are if you're not. And, you know, in all kinds of states in this country, I don't know about this one, but, but in many states in this country, um, if you're like a small-time drug dealer selling heroin uh, out of your car in the parking lot of a Denny's um, and you get busted twice, there's a mandatory minimum of 10 years in prison. And um, if you're the Sacklers, <laughs> there's not. And those double standards, I think, are interesting. And, 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 it all, and this stuff all kind of connects. So like another thing that was really in, sort of Surprising to me, honestly, as I got into the Sackler story, was I think um, 
you know, so I'm not, I'm not a billionaire. Um, and, uh, and, um, from the outside, I had assumed that if you were a billionaire, you would have access to state-of-the-art counsel. You could surround yourself by people who just gave you the best possible advice. And what I found with the Sacklers was it was kind of the opposite, actually, that they were surrounded by people increasingly who would reaffirm all the blinkered things that they said because that seemed like a good way to keep your job. And that over time, that could lead to a kind of delusion where you're like more and more out of touch with reality. So there's a point at the end of my of Empire of Pain, my book on the Sacklers, where a couple of the Sacklers get hauled before Congress. And they're talking like crazy people. Like they're, they're so out of touch with what's going on that to anyone, to all the members of Congress questioning them and certainly to anybody watching it, it seems like how they're living in a different reality. Um, I think the way you get there is by increments and it's by having people who, who work for you who perceive their job as being to say, no, no, you're right, you're just misunderstood, all those other people. Um, I mean, my hunch would be um, that Elon Musk may, uh, may have a little bit of this going on at the moment. Um, you know, it's, it's not just the Sacklers, but it's interesting to me, again, because of this idea of sort of narrative formation. What are the stories we tell ourselves about ourselves? Yeah, I think, I think that's interesting that like, like some of the people that are that you do write about are on the run, so they know they know that there's some ticking time bomb um, where they're going to end up in prison or dead. But I did feel like the Sacklers would never in their life understand and admit that what they did was wrong. That to their grave, to eight graves, nine graves, they will never understand that and that level of. I don't think the arms dealer would be like that. No, you're right. You're right. You're right. I, okay. Yeah, you're right. So there are people, yes, who have a kind of roguish, okay, maybe I'm the bad guy, but really who's right and who's wrong sort of. And there's, and, and there, that's, there is a kind of charisma in that, right? Um, whereas with the Sacklers, yeah, there's a sort of sense of righteousness. I mean, I think that's partially because they're white collar billionaires. I think it's partially because their reckoning came so late. I think it's partially because in the case of OxyContin, this was a drug that actually did help a lot of people. And so, of course, I think that they had a sort of perception. OxyContin was released in 1996. And almost immediately, there's two kinds of information that start coming back to the company. One kind of information is like, my husband has chronic pain and this is the first time he's been able to sleep through the night. You've actually really helped him. Thank you. You've given me my life back. The other kind of information is uh, my kid took a 80 milligram OxyContin pill and died. And part of what's interesting is how they sort of assimilate those, you know, it's like they, they really leaned on the first kind of letter and didn't put a lot of stock in the second. But yeah, to be clear, if the Sacklers were here with us tonight, they would say, um, it's all a big misunderstanding that like, so this is the company has pled guilty to criminal charges, federal criminal charges twice. They've been sued by every state in the country. Half of the states have sued individual members of the Sackler family. There are thousands of private lawsuits. There's books, there's articles, there's studies. The family has committed to pay $6 billion to help remediate the opioid crisis, but they say, we won't acknowledge any wrongdoing. And what they would say is like, all that stuff on that side of the ledger is actually just a mis big misunderstanding. 
we're fine. We never did anything wrong. So I'm wondering, want to switch a little bit to craft and writing and how you modulate your stories. So if, a, I think a good example to see it in real time is your podcast, Wind of Change, because you're, you're really titillating the audience. You're, you're bringing them up and you're taking them on all these circuitous routes to find the answer, which it's about, you know, you were posed this question and you were wondering, did this did the CIA write the Scorpion song Wind of Change? And you started with that question and it led you to GI Joe conferences and all over the world basically to find out if that was true and digging into the history. So as a listener, we could hear you. I was thinking like in the middle, like he probably knows the answer to this and he could have told us in five minutes, but there's no fun in that. So how do you do that as a writer and are you conscious of it like even on the sentence level yeah absolutely i mean i don't um absolutely on a sentence level i uh i mean the podcast was a weird flyer that sort of came about because i i had this friend and source who told me that this song which some of you may know this metal ballad wind of change which was this huge hit in 1990 by this german west german hair metal band the scorpions which was kind of the anthem for the end of the Cold War. And I got this tip that the song wasn't actually written by the Scorpions, it was written by the CIA. And uh, I had to get to the bottom of that. Um, and, um, and so in that, the, what I wanted to do with the podcast actually was kind of take you into the process of reporting. And podcasting is a, is a wonderfully forgiving medium in the sense that I think the reason for this is that you, you can like be doing the dishes or driving your car or walking your dog while you listen. So you're, the mind share that you're giving up is a little less. And um, what I wanted was to kind of, it wasn't a situation where I knew the answer from the beginning. It was I wanted you to kind of like fumble around in the dark with me and, and, and let the listener in on what that process is like in part because for me it's it's kind of magical. I love nothing more than reporting and going out and you get a lead and you find out there's this amazing person, but then when you look them up, it turns out they just died last month and you can't talk to them and you know or whatever it is, right? That you're you're kind of going out and um, and turning over stones. But in terms of um, sentence by sentence trying to engage you, yeah. I mean, I'm not an academic. I don't take it for granted that anybody's going to be forced to read. What I write, when I'm asked about um, like the reader I have in my mind's eye when I'm writing, um, that's not an abstract question for me because I, I live in New York and I ride the subway and I get on the subway and I see people pull the New Yorker out of their bag and flip through it. And occasionally, occasionally, I've had this moment where I, I see somebody and it's a week when I have a piece in the magazine and they pull it out and they look at the table of contents and they like flip to my story. <laughs> and I'll be watching them from like five or six feet away thinking, they're reading my piece, you know. <laughs> it never gets old. And, um, and then I'll have this thing where I'm like, where I'm like should I say something, you know. <laughs> um, and I'm wondering like how creepy it would be for them uh, to get a tap on the shoulder. And then what has happened, uh, not once, but actually twice, when I've had this experience, is that I'm, I'm watching as they, as they like, start reading the first paragraph and I'm thinking I'm gonna go over and say something. And they read the first paragraph 
And then they like flip to the next article and I'm like, oh God, no. Um, but so as a consequence, in part because of those bruising experiences, um, I want to grab you in the first sentence and never let go. And, and what that means is introducing little mysteries and cliffhangers and like all the, all the tricks, frankly, of detective fiction or suspense fiction um, and, and trying to kind of use some of that architecture in, in telling a, a nonfiction story. So I'm always thinking about, yes, I, when I sit down to write, I have all the cards, but I want to give some real thought to when I'm dealing each card out. Do you find that because you've spent a year or even more years researching these, that you've been maybe crafting it in your head or maybe you write outlines, I don't know, but when you do get to that sentence level that you sometimes write sentences that surprise you and actually open up a whole new angle just in the sort of creative process of something coming from somewhere else? Yeah, I mean, all the time, yeah. I mean, in part because I do think, I think um, uh, the, <laughs> I don't want to sound too obsessive here, but truly it's because I love this work. But I, for, I am happiest when I'm so into the work that I dream about it, and um, and stuff will unlock while I'm asleep. This drives my wife bananas, but I will suddenly wake up at three in the morning and grab my phone and start sending myself a note before the idea slips away, or I'll go for a run and something will kind of unlock while I'm running. And, and even when I sit down to write, um, yeah, there are still surprising, I do outline like crazy, but there are surprising things. There's a, I don't think I want to get too much into the detail of the story, but there's a story in here um, called A Loaded Gun, which is this crazy story about a woman named Amy Bishop who was a professor at the University of Alabama. She was a biologist. She got a PhD at Harvard. And in 2010, she walked into a faculty meeting um, and uh, pulled out a gun and shot six of her colleagues, killing three of them. And it was a notable case because, you know, I mean, I'm afraid that mass shootings are kind of a daily occurrence now, but they very rarely uh, are carried out by women. It's unusual to have a woman who is a mass shooter, uh, much less one with her kind of background and profile. But none of that was what interested me about the case. What was interesting was that after she was arrested in Huntsville, Alabama, the police there got a call from Braintree, Massachusetts, a suburb outside of Boston. And the police chief there said, you know, that woman you have in custody, I thought you'd want to know that back in the 80s, when she was just out of her teens, she shot and killed her younger brother with a shotgun. And it turned out that uh, she had killed her brother, and there had been only one witness. It was their mother, Judy Bishop. So Judy Bishop had two kids, and she walked into the kitchen one day, and she watched one kill the other. And the cops were on the way. What is she going to say to them? And when the cops came to the door, she said, I saw the whole thing. It was an accident. And the piece was, you know, Amy Bishop was not that interesting to me. Judy Bishop was really interesting to me, that choice. And there's a, I'm not going to talk about it now, but there's a moment in the middle of that piece where I talk about something that happened in my own family uh, when I was young with my dad. And um, that was a thing that I did not see coming, but as I was writing, it just kind of bubbled up. And it's a weird choice to make to go personal like that, but it was something that sort of helped me. It was like something that unlocked in the writing. Are there some stories that you hit a wall with that you could never finish, 
either the reporting or the writing that sort of haunt you or left you bereft? I mean, all the time, yeah. There are, I mean, sometimes there are stories where the, the pieces just aren't there. There's a great story, I'm not gonna tell you what it is, just in case there's any journalists in the room, I'm gonna steal it from me, but the, um, uh, there's an amazing story that I really wanna write, um, but nobody right now will talk, there's nobody, it's a criminal justice thing, and it's like the prosecutors won't talk, the defense lawyers won't talk, nobody will talk, none of the witnesses will talk. I think in time, I just check in periodically because I think there will come a day when I can write that story. And then there are stories that surprise you. So there's a piece in there about this guy, Hervé Falciani, where you can kind of get surprised. Something dies, but then it's not really dead. So Hervé Falciani was, um, he worked at HSBC, and one day he walked out of the bank in Geneva. He worked at the private bank in Geneva. One day he walked out with um, huge amounts of private client data which he ended up giving to the French government. And they started using it to go after tax evaders, people who were hiding their fortunes at the Swiss bank of HSBC. And then all these other governments got it. And the way it was explained to me was, he, this guy is the Edward Snowden of Swiss banking. So I thought that sounded like a good story. And I flew to Paris and we met up. Um, this very weird restaurant, like only in Paris restaurant called Hippopotamus, which is a, it's like a steakhouse, but for kids. Um, <laughs> totally bizarre. Like all these little cherubic French children having birthday parties, like eating tiny steak frites. And then me and the Edward Snowden of Swiss banking. And um, so we're in this kind of surreal, I had just gotten off a red eye and um, he started talking. I interviewed him for four hours and 15 minutes in my internal monologue was, I have made a terrible mistake. This man is a compulsive liar. None of what he's saying makes any sense. When I question him about this, like the story just doesn't add up and I would press and press. And so I had to give it up because how do you write about an unreliable main character? And I flew home and I was mea culpa with David Remnick, my boss. And um, six months later I woke up in the middle of the night and I thought, he's an unreliable narrator. How cool would it be to build a story around a guy who's like putting himself out there as the Edward Snowden of Swiss banking, but in fact, secretly is something a little less noble. Um, and so I wrote the piece and it came together well and it's in there, but that happens occasionally. It's that I, it, they do haunt me until there's some moment where I can kind of see it from another angle and find a way to revive it. And you've, you've written so many of these. How do you, like, have you written something lately that you learn something new about what you do, like how you do it, that sort of like was a light bulb for you? Uh, I think I'm, I'm still learning a lot, but I'm mostly learning from other people. You know, it's not, it's not that I, um, um, I, there are certain writers who I read really closely just because they're always doing surprising things. Um, I have a colleague who's got a book out that you should all get. Um, Rachel Aviv, who um, writes for The New Yorker. I think she's, she's kind of bar none the best magazine writer in America today. She's incredible. Um, she has a book called Strangers to Ourselves. And um, Every time I read a new Aviv piece, she does something. It's like watching somebody else who, I don't know what, it's like a chef watching a chef or um, an athlete watching an athlete or a musician listening to a musician where you kind of, 
they just approach it from in some way that you would never would have never occurred to you. Um, and so, yeah, I still have moments all the time where I kind of reevaluate, but it's 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 not that I'm um, I'm like surprising myself with some new flourish. It's more often that I just I steal from people who are better than I am. I think that we have um, time for one more question for you, and I guess you know, following up, we did talk a lot of about characters that. Um, seem to be nefarious in some way. But you also have people in this that are out for the right thing. I mean, you mentioned Judy Clark, but there's also um, a, a man whose brother died in Lockerbie from the Pan Am bombing, and he sort of becomes obsessed to try to figure out who is responsible for this bombing. So on the flip side, there's this passion for people who are trying to right something that was wrong. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't, um, yeah, it's not all about bad guys. And, and, and I mean, I should say Anthony Bourdain, uh, he would have loved being in a collection called Rogues, um, but, but obviously he wasn't a crook. Um, he just acted like one. Um, the, uh, no, I mean, some of these people I think are, um, you know, in a way it's, it's a story about people who break the law or, or sort of skirt morality and then the people who pursue them. Ken Dornstein, just because you mentioned him. So this is this incredible guy who was in college at Brown um, when the Lockerbie plane was bombed and his big brother who he worshiped, his big brother Dave was on the plane. He was coming back from Israel. Um, and um, Ken devoted the next 25 years of his life to trying to figure out who was responsible for the bombing. And the story that I tell uh, in, in Rogues is that he I mean, literally, he like became a private detective, and then he became an investigative journalist. And um, when Libya, when Gaddafi fell during the Arab Spring, Ken like went into Libya to try and finally solve what nobody had been able to solve, which is who made the bomb that was on the plane. And the crazy thing is, he does it. He figures out who the guy was. It's this person who's never been publicly identified before, and. If you read the story in Rogues, it's, it's this kind of amazing procedural about how Ken figures out who the guy is. He's way ahead of the FBI. Um, and for 25 years, he had this kind of lonely quest. What you don't know is what happened three weeks ago, which is that that guy is now in US custody, that Ken did the work, and the FBI essentially like took Ken's lead and they've arrested this guy, um, I think possibly under controversial circumstances, but um, he's gonna be brought back to the US and tried, but what an incredible, um, you know, I mean, I like to think of myself as somebody who, who obsessively digs into mysteries, but I, I don't hold a candle to Ken. It's just kind of amazing from every profile in here and your other stories, just how incredibly fascinating human beings are. Yeah, I mean, endlessly. They're your bread and butter. They are. They, the, well, the well is never dry. All right. We have uh, time for some questions. If you have a question, please come up to the microphone and fire away. I've read Rogues, and, you know, there are several, some of them are several years old. I'm wondering, do you ever go back to, re I mean, I read about the guy who was just arrested. So yeah. 
like there's other stories to be told from, I think you do some little follow-up, but do you ever go back to a subject? I, you know, different people are wired differently, and, and, and one of the things that I really wrestle with is that um, the thing about a New Yorker piece, like a big 10,000-word New Yorker piece, is that you're really striving to write the definitive version of a story, um, and the, like the, the kind of hubris of what you're doing is you're like, I'm going to write the piece, and then that'll be the piece. Um, but of course, like the people you're writing about are still alive and still kicking and behaving in all kinds of ways. And anything I'm writing about relating to criminal justice, often there's like a long, I mean, there's a story about this guy, Benny Steinmetz, who was this um, uh, Israeli diamond magnate who engaged in this very corrupt deal in Guinea, one of the poorest countries in the world in West Africa. And Benny Steinmetz eventually was convicted in Switzerland, but it was like a decade after the piece came out. Um, I think some people, uh, there are certain writers who pick a subject and they kind of stay there and they'll give you all the updates forever. Mm -hmm. And that's not me. I just, I think I'm too much of a dilettante maybe. It's, <laughs> it's like an attention span thing. I like to kind of parachute in, absorb it, tell my version of the story and then move on. And so even with Rogues, there are these little postscripts at the end. And originally they were much longer. But what I realized was like, you're writing a whole other piece, you cannot do this, you know? And so I ended up just doing a sentence or two um, because life goes on and, and um, I think I just happen to be somebody who likes to move on to the next thing. More stories to be yeah. told. Thank you. Thank you. So I have a question that was texted to me by someone tuning in to the live stream. Um, so it's how do you prepare for your interviews and how do you conduct them in a way that makes your subjects want to engage with you? Oh, what a good question. Um, so I prepare a lot for interviews, but I don't, I prepare a lot in the sense that I always want to, um, to read everything I can and be, um, I mean, I'll give you an example. I can tell you right, it's not a secret. I'm working on a piece right now about the art dealer Larry Gagosian. And it's not clear whether Gagosian will talk to me. He may, he may not. Um, but one of the things I've been doing over the last couple of weeks is reading every single interview he's ever given over the last 40 years because I wouldn't want to sit down with him if I had the opportunity or sit down with anybody who knows him if I don't get to speak with him and not know about all those earlier interviews. So I do a lot of preparation. The catch is when you sit down to do the interview, I think you have to put it all out of your mind because... I think when I was younger, I would get into interviews with people and I would try and impress them with how much I knew. And I realized that that is the worst strategy possible because they'll start speaking to you in shorthand and then you sit down and of course you need to explain it to the reader who hasn't done all that homework. And it's much better if you, um, <laughs> there's a wonderful movie, Margin Call. I don't know if any of you have seen this movie. Great movie. Um, uh, and it's kind of about the collapse of Lehman Brothers. But, the, um, but Jeremy Irons has a terrific uh, cameo in the movie and he kind of comes down, he's like the head of this bank and he needs somebody to explain to him what's gone wrong. And obviously they have a problem which is that if they explain really what went wrong, the viewers watching the movie are gonna fall asleep because it's so complicated. And so there's this wonderful moment where Jeremy Irons is talking to some young associate at the bank and, and, uh, and he says, Explain it to me as if I were a 10-year-old child or a golden retriever. Um, and 
Uh, this is kind of what I try and do in interviews, is have people explain it to me as if I were a golden retriever, because um, the reader is kind of a golden retriever, right? The, the reader comes in with no background, and so you want them to break it down. Um, and then I guess the last thing I would say is the, uh, I think that there's a kind of, um, I think it's helpful for reporters to be able to code switch a little bit and sort of meet people where they are. And part of what I love about my job is that one day I'm talking to an MIT professor and the next day to a like former lieutenant of the Sinaloa cartel down in Juarez um, and the next day to Anthony Bourdain. Um, and you have to be able to kind of navigate those very different conversational idioms. Um, and I think the main, the main thing is to kind of try and find a, a conversational dynamic where the person you're talking to is comfortable. And so like sometimes for me, I'm dealing with people who've dealt with a great deal of trauma, right? And, and there I, I'm going to assume a much different posture than I am if I'm, if I'm interviewing like Carl Icahn or someone, you know, I mean, it, it's just a very different uh, sort of approach. And so I think you need to be sensitive to those differences. I think there was a question in the front row, which we can repeat if. Um... So the question was, what kind of reaction does he get from the people that he writes about? Uh, it varies. I mean, it's, um, you know, there are people who are not huge fans. Um, uh, there are people who, who do, you know the thing I said earlier about the photo? It's very often the case if I'm writing about somebody, particularly if they're cooperating, where I won't hear from them for three or four days, and there'll be an awkward silence. And often if it's somebody I've spent six months writing about, I've been talking to them every day for six months, and then it's silence for three or four days after the piece came out. And I think the reason is that they read it they all pretend that they, to be casual about it, but they read it as soon as it's online. Um, and they read it, and it's uncomfortable to see yourself, to see your, your physicality described. It's uncomfortable to see the ways in which your quotes, like the things that they're meant to illuminate. So they're things that you said, but you, know, you may disagree with the, the way in which they're put forth. And then often what happens is if it's not a really negative piece, What'll happen is after three or four days, they'll grudgingly, what happens is everybody in their life is like, oh my God, I read the article in the New Yorker. You sounded great. You know, the people come to them um, who I think are less, you know, they don't, they're not sort of hampered in the same way that any of us would be, right? By our own sort of fragile self-image. Um, so that's one kind of story. But I mean, another, you know, the Sacklers spent two years threatening to sue me. Um, they... Um, they sent dozens of legal threats. Um, and that kind of thing happens too. And, you know, it's, it's pretty unpleasant. Um, and, and you get everything in between. I mean, a part of the strangeness of it, there's a story I told at the very beginning of the book about how after my article about Chapo Guzman came out, that was a write-around. I didn't talk to Chapo Guzman. He was in prison in Mexico. And after the article came out, I got a call from a lawyer for the Guzman family and I was terrified because it hadn't occurred to me that he would even read the piece. Um, he, didn't, he didn't seem like a New Yorker subscriber, you know? <laughs> and, um, and I didn't know what, was, what this was about, and I didn't know what they would object to. And the lawyer said, uh, he said, El Senor has read your article. And I said, oh, God. And he said, um, 
El Señor is ready to write his memoirs. And I, this was totally out of the blue. I didn't know what was going on. And so I just kind of stammered and said, well, that's a book I'd like to read. And he said, um, but sir, is it a book you would like to write? And so I had thought that they would, first I didn't think they would read the piece. Then I thought if they read it, they would hate it. And then they liked it so much they asked me to ghostwrite his memoir, um, which I politely declined. Um, but uh, but it's, I, it just goes to show you that you can, never, you can never predict how people will react. We have time for maybe two more questions. Your chapter um, about Trump and um, was it Mark Burton? Burnett. Burnett. Um, was that chapter a, uh, a write-around, or did you have the opportunity to interview Donald Trump? I, I didn't have the pleasure. The, um, uh, I, I'm sure we asked, but I, I wasn't able to, no. Um, what the, the backbone of that piece was I talked to lots and lots and lots of people who had worked very closely with Trump on The Apprentice, producers who had been... Uh, very intimately involved in the show. Well, I hope you'll get interviewed by the Justice Department and uh, Jack Smith. <laughs> That's let, let, we'll see, I'll keep you posted. One more question. Hi, it's kind of a geeky writer question, but- um, My favorite how, kind. <laughs> how much do your editors kind of get into your stories and either you know, mess them up a little bit, you think, or what kind of disagreements do you have with them, if any? Yeah, so, so, I mean, I, I, love, um, I love editors. The, um, uh, there's a wonderful editor from The New Yorker named John Bennett who died last year. Um, he'd been at The New Yorker for a long time. And when he died, my colleague Nick Palmgarten wrote a nice little re remembrance of him in which he quoted Bennett saying something, <laughs> a, a line that I had never heard before, but now I will, I will adopt, which is Bennett said, um, a writer is like a guy walking down the hall in the hospital, and he's wearing one of those hospital johnnies that's open at the back. <laughs> and the editor is the person who's walking right behind him, making sure that nobody can see his ass. <laughs> um, so I've had the same editor, Daniel Zaleski, uh, since, um, it's, you know, for a long, since 2006. Um, and, he absolutely is very involved in every piece, from the conception of the piece to conversations about structuring it, um, to a little bit of, of line editing stuff. Um, and then of course we have fact checkers and copy editors and so forth. Um, but it's never, this, it's never the case that I feel, um, that I feel like they, you know, that monkeying around with it doesn't make it much better. Um, I feel like um, uh, they're generally kind of protecting me and helping elevate the work. And then the thing that's been wonderful for me about having a relationship you know, of almost 20 years with the same editor is that he's like a voice in my head now. Like I've internalized a lot of the really brilliant um, ideas that he has about how you tell a story. Um, and that's probably streamlined the editing process too because there's, there's moves that I, um, there's moves that I know not to make because he won't let me make them. And then the, the most wonderful thing is when you, when you kind of try the joke 
knowing that if it won't if it doesn't if it's not funny he'll gently say it's not funny we need to cut the joke you know um, or you do the little pirouette um, the little flourish and he'll he'll either say like it's not landing or it looks like you're showing off or um, what if we tweaked it just like this then it would work and um, so that gives you a kind of a, conf a confidence to experiment a little uh, and and not worry that people will see your ass. <laughs> Well, Patrick, thank you so much for being here, for thank coming you. to Aspen. Thank you, thank you everybody, so much. Patrick Radden Keefe is a staff writer at The New Yorker magazine, which he's been contributing to since 2006. He's the author of the New York Times bestsellers, Empire of Pain and Say Nothing, as well as two earlier nonfiction books. His most recent book is Rogues, True Stories of Grifters, Killers, Rebels, and Crooks. He's also the writer and host of Wind of Change, a podcast series that investigates the convergence of espionage and heavy metal music during the Cold War. The series was named the number one podcast of 2020 by The Guardian. Mitzi Rapkin is the host and producer of the literary podcast, First Draft, a dialogue on writing. First Draft features fiction, nonfiction, poetry, and essay writers. With a specific focus on craft, Rapkin and her guests explore the decisions and psychology that went into the book being discussed, the themes of a writer's work, and questions focused on the human experience. If you were inspired by this conversation, we invite you to experience the Aspen Ideas Festival in person this June. Register today at aspenideas.org. Today's show was programmed by the Aspen Words team and produced by Natalie Jones and me. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for listening. Thank you.